please remain standing as you are able for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Angela, thank you for reading our lesson. And it is so good to be with you on this uh, second Sunday of Epiphany and the second Sunday of the new year, the new decade, as we continue the season and this series in Epiphany. Um, We've got to do something about these late nights on Saturday night. There was an Epiphany in Baltimore last night, and um, thanks be to God. I want to take a little bit of credit for that because we had a Saturday evening prayer service last night. And we got out a little early and got people home, but it was very meaningful. And today, this weekend is an extremely meaningful experience in the life of our church because of the way that we'll respond today in coming to reaffirm our vows. The text this morning that Angela read is another epiphany, aha moment, that happens this time not in Bethlehem with Magi, but this time at the River Jordan, at a baptism. It's interesting to me that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, cover this scene. All four report this particular scene, each with a little different twist, as is often the case. But since this morning we're in Matthew, and we have been for the last several weeks, I want to look at the distinctives of Matthew's account before we come this morning to reaffirm our own baptismal vows. The first distinctive in Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus is the insertion of a dialogue or conversation between Jesus and John. You don't find that in any of the other gospel writers, but you find it in Matthew. It's apologetic in tone. It is a defense, if you will, of why Jesus was baptized in the first place. Now, I I don't have to tell you, you probably remember that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised in a church where I was always taught that Jesus was the only man who ever lived who was without sin. And so when we read this, at first, it's a little confusing that Jesus would come to the water in repentance of sins. Furthermore, it's a little bit baffling the fact that it's John who does the honors. It's John who baptizes Jesus, which seems at first to put Jesus in a subordinate, inferior role. 
Now, there's a part of me, honestly, that would prefer that the text would read, now Jesus waded into the water and anointed himself, baptized himself, and said, in the name of the Father, me and the Holy Spirit, amen. Matthew says that John tried to prevent it. He tried to stop it. He said to Jesus, it's you who ought to be baptizing me. But Jesus says, let it be so for now, for it is proper in order to fulfill all righteousness. That clears it up, right? What on earth does he mean? I think what Matthew is trying to do is he's telegraphing the rest of the gospel story. The question is, how will Jesus fulfill all righteousness? And the answer, if you know the rest of the story, is he's going to do it by going to the cross. He's going to fulfill all righteousness by taking our sin upon himself. So here, at the beginning of the story, in this epiphany moment, Jesus isn't coming to the Jordan as a sinner. He's coming in solidarity with sinners, like me and like you. He's coming as our substitute, and by so doing, he's taking his first step on the road to the cross. As I've been living with this text, I realize that the chief criticism that Jesus faced in his ministry from his own people from synagogue folk is found in Matthew 11, verse 19. They said of him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend to sinners and tax collectors. And it's interesting that the phrase glutton and drunkard has a history. In fact, if you turn back to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the Deuteronomic Code, Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, you will find that phrase there. It's a part of the holiness code in chapters 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says. Listen. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his mother and father, and though they chastise him, will not give heed to them, then you shall bring him out to the city gate and say to the elders, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death, and you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. End of quote. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. They took him outside the city gates and nailed him to a tree. They ridiculed and labeled him a glutton and a drunkard, a disobedient son. And it turns out the only one who ever lived without sin actually builds solidarity with sinners. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he came to the water. Aha, it's an epiphany. There's a second distinction in Matthew's text that I think warrants our attention. You'll notice if you read the other gospel writers that all the accounts are very similar, particularly in regard to the clouds parting, 
the dove descending and the voice declaring, all of that is epiphany language. It's revealing something, it's manifesting something about Jesus. But there's a line in Matthew 3, it's verse 16 that says, and he, meaning Jesus, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and alighting on him. That's interesting. Another translation says, and resting on him. What does that mean? The dove is a symbol of the Spirit of God. If you go back to the book of Genesis, to the creation story, in chapter 1, the first three verses, you will discover it says that at the beginning of creation, when the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, the Spirit was hovering over the water. Now, the Hebrew word for hovering literally means fluttering or floating, encircling, overshadowing. It's actually bird talk. It's what a dove does. It's what a bird does. And here in Matthew 3, again, we read the Spirit is hovering, encircling the water. And what Matthew is saying is there's a new creation here. God is renewing creation through His Son on whom the Spirit is now resting, encircling. Although, it's interesting, in chapter 4, verse 1, in the very next pericope, the Spirit will not allow Jesus to rest because the next verse says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. One thing you will discover is that baptism by fire always follows baptism by water. It always does. When your identity is confirmed, it's going to be tested in the wilderness, but Jesus doesn't go out there alone. The Spirit is resting on him, encircling, sheltering, even in the wilderness. I've been reading a book, I think, that is a must-read for the church in this age called Quietly Courageous. It's written by Gil Rendell of the Texas Methodist Foundation. And in the book, he describes our current season in the church as being like a wilderness. This is what he writes. The wilderness is disorienting and deeply unfamiliar territory that assuredly must make it a favored place for God to alter our hearts, minds, and purposes, to change our purposes within the chosen people. In the wilderness, he writes, leaders must lead with courage without being exactly sure where they're going. I'm not always sure exactly where I'm going, but I know who's going with me because I've been to the water and I still feel the Spirit resting on me. There's one other detail in Matthew that I think needs mentioning. Notice that the voice from the heavens says, as Jesus is coming out of the water, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. It's different in Matthew from Mark and Luke. In Mark and Luke, the voice says, you are my beloved son. 
And so it sounds like in Mark and Luke that it's a very personal word. God is speaking directly to Jesus. You are my son. That's personal. But in Matthew, this is my son. It's like a public announcement. It's like God is not necessarily just speaking to Jesus, but to the church, to the crowd in the third person. This is my son. And so I want to know which one is it? You or this? Well, it's both. Because baptism is both personal and public. Baptism is a personal conferring of identity, and it's a public witness to the world. And so what's interesting is the baptism of Jesus becomes archetypal or a prototype for understanding our own baptism. The aha in which identity and purpose is revealed and confirmed. It's in the water. Now, I don't have to tell you that we live in an age called identity theft. And I don't have to tell you that Satan is a master at sabotaging identity. We live in a world that defines us in far too narrow a way by race, by ethnicity, by creed, by gender, by orientation, by nationality, by economic power, by political perspective, and that's a part of who we are. But our primary identity is not in any of those things. It's in the water. It's in the bowl. It's in the dove. It's in the voice that says, you're mine. You are my son. This is my daughter. You're the beloved of God. Some of you know the name Henry Nouwen, yes? He's written a book called Life of the Beloved in which he shares these words. The world tells you many lies about who you are and you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, every time you feel offended or rejected, you must dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am a chosen child of God. I am precious in God's eyes. I am called the beloved from all eternity. And I'm held safe in an everlasting faith. That's who you are. That's your primary identity. There's something in the water. Brennan Manning, who wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, said, define yourself radically as one beloved of God because every other identity is illusion compared to that. That's why Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 27 and 28, for all of you were baptized into Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, no ethnicity. There is no slave nor free status. There is no male nor female gender, for you are all one in Christ 
Jesus. Carl Jung once said, the world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, they will tell you. It's in the water. There's something in the water. There was earth-shattering news this week. If you watched the news or got the paper, I'm not talking about the conflict in Iran. I'm not even talking about the fires in Australia, though we're remembering those things in our prayers. I'm talking about Harry and Meghan. Earth-shattering. Apparently, these two are now checking out on the royal family. Never mind that Harry is sixth in line to be the king of England. They apparently have decided among themselves after bearing a child that they just want to be Harry and Meghan. Buckingham Palace has been blindsided. The queen is in a tizzy. She's down to two cups of tea. <laughs> Disappointed, frazzled, bum-fuzzled. She says, and I quote, they have complicated issues to work through. Well, welcome to the real world. <laughs> They're walking away, but it doesn't change the fact that Harry has royalty in his veins. He's still the Duke of Sussex. He's still the grandson of the king. Just because he forsakes the kingdom doesn't change who he is. You listening? If that's true for Harry and Meghan, <laughs> it's true for me and it's true for you. You are a child of the king. You are the beloved of God and you don't just walk away from that. Let me give you one example and I'm finished. Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest who's worked for many years in Los Angeles in an organization called Homeboys. He's written a book called Tattoos of the Heart. In that book, he tells the story of a man named Bill Kane. Mr. Kane is a spiritual director who took a break from ministry a while back to care for his dying father. His dad became frail and dependent, had cancer, and depended on Bill for everything, all of his needs. And though the cancer was taking its toll physically on his dad, his dad remained alert and very lively and animated. And there was a role reversal happening, and some of you have been through this, where father was becoming son and the son was actually becoming the father. Every night, Bill would put his father to bed and read him to sleep, just as his father once did for him when he was a boy. Bill would read some novel to him, and his father would lie there, staring at his son, smiling. And one night, Bill was absolutely exhausted from the day's care and work, and he pled with his dad, look, dad, here's the deal. I read to you, you close your eyes and go to sleep. And Bill's father would impishly apologize and then dutifully close his eyes, but it wouldn't last for long. Soon in the reading, Bill's father would pop one eye open and smile at his son, and Bill would catch him and whine, Dad, it's a deal, and the father would oblige until he couldn't anymore, and the other eye would pop open to catch a glimpse of his boy 
And it went on and on and on. After Bill's dad died, Bill said that he understood this nightly ritual was really of a, of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off his kid. <laughs> he just couldn't take his mind off of him. How much more so of God? He concludes, what's true of Jesus is true for us. And so this voice breaks through all the chaos, the clouds, and comes straight to us. You're my beloved in whom I am pleased. There's something in the water. <laughs> it's who we are. And so this morning, while the new year, the decade, is not two weeks old, I'm inviting you today not to walk away from your identity, but to walk toward it and to remember who you are, to renew your vows and to reclaim the promise so that you will know that you are the beloved of God. It's in the water. In Jesus' name, amen.